Well, good morning. And at this point, junior high or high school are, a lot, are heading out unless you've asked your junior high or high schoolers to stick around. This is a, as we said, a PG-13 level. So if you brought your younger child in under the age of 13 and you don't want them to having a conversation from uh, about sex, then it's probably a great idea to let them go connect with the uh, children's ministry in there. But otherwise, we're ready to um, kind of talk about this subject and dive into it a little bit as we start this new series, Thinking Biblically About Sex. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. My name is Greg Harris. I'm senior pastor at Olive Branch, and we are kind of diving into a, a topic that honestly has a, a lot of confusion for a lot of us and a lot of interesting pieces for a lot of us to kind of grab and discuss in our culture, and we'll, we'll kind of dive into that. But some of you may have come today, and it's like, hey, this is the last thing you want to even think about. Uh, you've had a hard week. You've just gotten off a, a horrible situation at work, or your finances are in a certain way, or you're just emotionally not in a state this morning to talk about this or deal with this subject. And I just want to acknowledge that not all of us are prepared always to deal with the topic that we may pick up. And so I want to get, pray for you this morning and, and, and point you over to our prayer team that will be in the back at the end of the service. They would love to pray with you. You can unload your burdens there and not feel like you, you can't have somewhere to go. So as we dive into this, feel free to um, set your, your worries aside and be able to focus because we want to love on you and care about you in whatever way we can. Would you join with me in prayer before we begin? Father, thank you that you have given um, us the opportunity to connect with you no matter what or when, um, what is going on in our lives or when we are in our lives. We ask that you would hear our cries, our prayers now as uh, we just are going through various different things. Some of us, um, hard things, others of us are just so excited and joyful. We just wanted to praise you more. We'd love the music to keep going because we want to just give you our thanks. God, with all these different places that we're in, we pray that you would help us. You know, as our hyper children are in the children's ministry, we ask you help them and our leaders there and that you just enable us to enjoy this conversation and focus on you. Meet us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'll tell you what, we're, we're starting a topic that honestly is, is one that is kind of an interesting, has an interesting situation. How many of you have ever had to have a conversation with your kid about sex? Throw up your hand real quick. Okay. I remember when my dad did that. Anybody else remember when your dad or your mom came and talked to you about that? Uh, my dad um, brought me in and he was a little, um, I would say uncomfortable, which made me uncomfortable, if you know what I'm saying. You're, he's sitting there and he's like, well, let's talk. And I'm like, okay, what do you want to talk about? He's like, well, um... Yeah, you know, uh, and I'm like, come on, Dad, spit it out. I knew he was kind of getting to that talk, by the way. was I'm like, my friends have already told me everything, Dad. You're okay, you know, kind of reality. But then he goes like, this is about as good as he can get. And all his discomfort, he's like, yeah, sometimes you're going to feel things down there. And you're going to want to touch yourself. It's okay. You know, that's okay. Just don't do too much. And all right, we're good, right? And I'm like... <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Whoa, man, I'm prepared for life, you know. And then so I'm thinking, this is, this, this is great. My dad just, you know, I, I thought I was all confident because I had talked to youth, had done youth ministry sermons and talked to students at retreats and done all this stuff over the years about sex. And then it comes to my wife's like, you need to go talk to your son. And I was like, what about? She's like, sex. I'm like, yeah, okay, this will be interesting. So all I know is that it went really awkwardly, and he's probably going to think I said something like my dad or something in the future. Because when I went back to him to have the second conversation, I was like, you remember what we were talking about? He's like, no. You know, that's kind of the reality what it is. But 
we can just be so uncomfortable, isn't that true, in this conversation? So I just want to acknowledge that that same discomfort my father felt, that I felt talking to my kid, I still feel that right now. And you guys feel semi-uncomfortable about this conversation. Because even though this is glorified in our culture, an intelligent conversation still is one of the most awkward things you can ever have. And as we discuss this, I want to give you the freedom to feel like, yeah, this is like not comfortable for me right now. And that's okay. It shouldn't be comfortable for us. The Bible is very discreet about sex and very, and very careful in how it deals with it, but it does deal with it. And I think this discomfort that we feel now is actually why so many of us are confused. I mean, where do you go to get good information about sex anyway? The internet? Well, that's not a good idea. Don't even try. It's not, a, it's just not, and besides, we don't believe 95% of what the internet says anymore. At least that's what I read on the internet. And the other, then there's, where do we go? We go to Hollywood and talk to celebrities about their sex life. Like, that's a good place to look. You want a cesspool of problems and, and difficulties. So we all know, okay, we go to our friends. Well, where do our friends get the information from celebrities and the internet or magazines or whatever? And so we all go, no, no, no. We know where we get our information from, from school, right? You go to sex ed. Well, you want to draw pictures of like, you know, cow's heads. That's what it looked like to me in junior high. And, and you're just like, it doesn't make any sense. And it's not, it, you're not there. Where do we go? Well, can I be honest with you? I really do think you need to go to God. I think he's talked about it. And I mean, it may be enlightening to us to realize that God's the one who invented sex. See, our culture and us, uh, all of us together, can have some, some kinds of sense of that sex is, is this idea of an appetite. You know, we're like, I know what sex is. It's an appetite. It's like needing to eat and needing to sleep. You know, and, they, and people will say these things. Maybe you've heard this like, hey, sex is like eating and sleeping. You got to have it or you'll die. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure there's been lots of human beings on earth who have not died because they didn't have sex. But then that's interesting is when we say it's an appetite, our culture at the same time, some of us are like, wait, wait well, you know, it's, it's like eating and it's like sleeping, but it's a desire, it's, a, it's an appetite, and you should feed it as much as you can. And like, well, time out. Even in eating, you only eat the right things at the right times. You don't overeat. That's a problem that our culture says is a problem. At the same time, when you look at sleep, you don't sleep all the time. And you don't not sleep. There's a certain amount you should sleep, and there's a way of regulating the appetite. Well, isn't that the same thing as an appetite of sex then? Shouldn't there be a way of regulating that? Is it really an appetite the way that we're thinking about it? You know, other, others of us and other people have said it's an expression. It's the way that we express ourselves. And we should just be expressive with our sex because that's who we are. And I'm like, Miley Cyrus, I just don't agree, you know, kind of reality. There's something off about what people do in their privacy and they want to gloat on it on a stage or shout about it in front of a ton of people. I'm, I'm just not, I think there's something off there. And so, you know, we're left with our third option, right? That sex is evil. Oh, don't you dare do it. It might cause you to sin or whatever. That seems to be like what the church has been saying or people think the church has been saying. Can I just, can I just again say that that's not what God is saying? You know, if you've come to hear Greg bash on sex for four weeks, that's not what we're going to be doing. Really, the goal is to find out what God has been saying because God was the first one who ever came up with sex. Maybe we didn't think about this, but somewhere in eternity past, he went, I got a great idea. And he put it into creation. And he added it into our lives. And it's a brilliant, good idea that has been put in a very specific manner into our culture. Because God loves sex. He loves it. He invented it. And he wants humanity to have sex as he designed it. 
Now that's what we're going to get into. What is this design? What is this theology? How do we know what it is? Well, to get there, we're going to start at the beginning. It's a very good place to start. Genesis chapter 2. And so if you want to open your Bibles up to Genesis 2, we're going to go there and take a look at what God was doing in these opening chapters as he set up the world as he intended it to be. And we're going to derive from that some information. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles actually under the seat. You can grab one of those. It'll be right there on page 2. Easy one to find. And so we can all together read what's going on here. We're actually going to kind of, the whole opening of chapter two is like the last week, the last day of creation, and then it moves into this whole conversation about building this garden and Adam and putting him in there. We're going to pick up at verse 18. So if you want to go right there, it reads this way. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. And so we'll start right there. He says, look, God begins. He sees this creation he's made. He's placed man in the garden. He's told him the rules of the garden, what he needs him to do. And then he goes, hold on a second. This isn't good. The man's alone. Now this, by the way, has nothing to do with singleness. For everybody in here who's a single, this is not stating that your life is therefore somehow deficient as a human being. No, this is, this is a theological idea. God, who is a trinity, he is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one being, eternal community, looks at the one that he's made in his image and says they're alone. That's not good. We need to make the female. We need to have the companionship for humanity so that there is companionship, there's community. And so this is not a commentary on being single or married. This is a commentary on creation. Do we, do we understand that? I just want to, people have used that verse too often to beat singles up and that's not what it's there for. Now, he goes on and he says, okay, we need to have this, this community formed. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever he call, the man called every living creature, that's what his name. So here, here comes this picture that Adam is standing there and the, up comes the ox and up comes the cow. And he says, ox, cow, moving along. Stag, doe, moving along. Male duck, female duck, moving along. You know, that, and this idea was, he's getting the idea here. Male, female, move. Male, female, move. Male, female, next. Male, female, next. Male. Where's mine? That's the idea. That God is evoking inside of Adam this reality that there is more to lie. There's something missing. And so it goes on. The man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This word helper, people get all worked up about it like women are subservient or something. No, it literally is this concept, the, the one who fits, this help meet. It's, a, it's an exact fit. The male and females fit together. Oh, wait a minute. That sounds sexual. It is. And it's also about how males and females work in society. We actually complement each other. This is a reality that we're, we are made together. But in this case, he is making the female for Adam to produce the rest of humanity. And so it moves on. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs. A piece is actually the term in Hebrew. We say rib, but he closed it up over the place of the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is bone of my, the last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here's the picture. He's fallen asleep. God's formed this woman. 
He's, he's sitting there longing for, you know, male, female, male, female. He's like, Where, where's mine? He falls asleep, wakes up, and here is God. You can almost imagine God walking Eve down an aisle of trees or something. He's bringing the bride to the groom. And he wakes up and he goes, Whoa, man! You know, that's, how, that's where the name came from. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. But he, he does name her. He, he's like, this is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. I mean, he breaks out as every good male does in poetry and song when he sees the beauty of his bride coming down the aisle. We don't think so. That's how the ancient world thought of it. You're a man when you see your bride and you go, she is so lovely. As it, Well, no, we'll get into song songs later. But anyway, she, she's coming towards it. And he's just, oh, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe this. I get to be with her. That's the thought of every groom, by the way, as she's coming down the aisle. I don't know a groom who didn't think, I get to be with her? If you didn't think that, go get some counseling. The, uh, <laughs> she's coming, and it's this picture of coming together, and suddenly it goes, out of nowhere you're thinking, okay, what's going to happen next in this narrative? This is going so well. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his, full fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were, not, and were not ashamed. Well, thank you, narrator, for ruining this beautiful moment. Poetry and excitement and you're going to leave your mom and dad. You can cleave together and you're both going to be naked and okay. You know, I'm just like, what is going on here? Actually, it's sex breaking right into the narrative. Out of nowhere, God says, and they got to have sex. He's saying, what? Yeah, look at it. He begins this. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, God's point is simply this. When we start talking about sex from the biblical perspective, sex is God's gift to married people. It's, it's right at the beginning. You're saying, but Adam and Eve aren't married. Yes, they are. Right here, this, it is seen that they're coming down this aisle, they're getting connected, and as we realize this, we'll see that sex comes from marriage because marriage comes first. Look at this verse. He, she, he wakes up, he sees her, he's exalting, and then it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast. The old term was cleave. You might have that in, in your King James Version there. And cleave to his wife. And this idea of cleaving has two pictures associated with it. One is, yes, a sexual picture. They're cleaving together. They're becoming one flesh. They're having sex. But the term cleave actually means covenanted together. They're not broken apart. The picture of marriage and sex are the same idea. That sex is actually an image of the marriage covenant that's occurring between a male and a female. When they come together and say, my life for yours, your life for mine, it says now they're becoming one flesh. They are cleaving together. And, and it's this picture that, set, that every time a married couple engages in sex, they're engaging in the very commitment of the vows they made in marriage. That's the picture that's going on there. And so there's this sudden reminder that you guys are one being. You're, you're connected. And this is the picture. One flesh is a unified life. It is not just a physical act. I mean, when you come and have sex, you are binding your souls. You're binding your bodies. You're binding your lives. And in this is a picture of a bound commitment. That you're binding your economic life. You're binding your entire names together, your student loan debt together. You know what I mean? It's all, all the same thing is coming together. 
There's no separation between you two. And it implies this, this weddedness that's so close, so intimate. It actually produces something that is one flesh called a child. And the biblical picture here, as it was intended, is to have this covenant shown off in this act that produces literally little people running around that are a picture of that covenant. A picture of that marriage relationship. Each one of us, in some way, are a picture of the covenant that was intended in marriage. Now, some of us, our parents weren't married when they had us. Um, some of you guys are, have, are parents of single parents. Some of you guys have divorce, which is, by the way, why divorce is so painful for the child. It's literally the separating of the covenant that they represent. And so there's very great care we take in those cases. Now, again, this is a knock you if you've had a divorce. This, and that. this is God's original intention and in how closely related sex and marriage are. That it is literally, the act is not something you just do. It is a very deeply symbolic, powerful reality of a covenant. You can't separate them in, in the mind of God. You can't separate them in theology. And so what's interesting then is that sex produces children and children comes from this action of sex. But sex is more than that. It's not just uh, procreation. Sex is about knowledge. It's about knowing each other. Um, look at... Look at this, if you will. It says that they were naked and they were not ashamed, but over to four, chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. It says, now, Adam and Eve knew, or Adam knew Eve, his wife. This is the, there, you'll actually find, in the, if you have an ESV Bible, you can search your whole Bible, you will not find the word sex once. Because the Hebrews don't have a word for it. They, have, they use euphemisms all over the place. They never actually directly said they did. No, they, they have like, they go in, they lie together, or they know each other. No is the term used in marriage. And it's an intimacy that's implied. They knew each other especially well. They understood each other, and they had this depth of knowledge of each other. Now, right here, I got to admit something to you guys. I've got this horrible, dirty, dark secret that is about my life, and I need to tell you right now. And so this is a little uncomfortable for me, so please Give, give, forgive me or give me grace, but I'm a mess too. I actually absolutely love studying. <laughs> study's a dirty word in our culture. Just ask my children. You need to study for that test. I don't want to study. Nobody here likes to study. Anybody love to study other than me? I mean, a couple of us. I love studying. People ask me, what do you do the rest of the week after you preach? I mean, you work only one day a week, right? I say, no, no, no. <laughs> I study all week long. I get to make a term paper every week and present it to you guys. Doesn't it sound like a fun life? I love it. So, but that's the point. I study and I get to study. I love studying, buying books and reading. Don't read whole books. You just read the right sections and you pull the information out. And I pull together this, oh, I just love studying. And some of you guys are looking at me like, that's disgusting. You know, that's so you don't study. But, but listen, Guys and gals, we better start learning how to study because sex is a study. If sex is to know someone intimately, then you and I, if we're married, must learn the art of studying the other. You should be able to write the, the book on your spouse. You should know him or her so well, so intimately, so deeply. You should be able to turn and, and be able to know exactly what bugs her about you or, or what turns her towards the Lord or what moves her and motivates her in love. You should be so expert at your spouse 
If you are that way, intimacy becomes no problem. Because you begin to know one another so deeply. Now, the danger is we're fallen. We'll know what ticks each other off and we'll start doing it on purpose. But we'll talk about the fall in a minute. The issue here is that you and I need to study. We need to be intimate. He says they were naked and unashamed. God intended us not to hide. He intended us not to be afraid. He intended us to be open and, and very, very, here I am in marriage without shame. And this is this picture of knowledge, this picture of knowing one another. And so when you know someone, what's the intent of knowing them? To hurt them? No, 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 no. That's post, post chapter three. We'll get there in a second. It was intended so you could give. See, sex is a giving act. Hear, hear that again. Sex is a giving act. Sex is about knowing each other so you can give to them what they long for. You can give to them the good. You can give to them the things that they are. Guys, we need to be giving people in sex. The second you start taking in sex is the second sex has been flipped and it's no longer sex. It's something else. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. But sex is about knowing and giving and applying what you know for the betterment of the other. That's love. It's a giving thing. It's what Jesus did for us is he gave us his life. He loved us. He gave himself to us. Which is how for singles, this action of community and giving can evolve even in the church as you give to each other and as you know God intimately and delve deeper and deeper into him. This is the reality of how all of us stay in this. But I'm taking sermons from the next three weeks away from me. So let's, let's continue on. God's intention then is in this situation where it's not selfish but good and perfect. God doesn't say no. He says, go! Get going, married people. Come on! In fact, that's what he says. God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, last time I checked, multiply is not a small thing. That's a lot. God says, I made Adam and Eve. Go have sex and have lots of kids. Multiply. This means not just once or twice. Go do it. Come on. I made this is what it's for. Reunite your covenant. Keep knowing each other. Go deeper. Keep giving. It is a beautiful, good, gospel-like thing. This is what sex is. This is what God intended. What in the world happened? Well, that's where we move on to chapter three. Sex has been distorted by the fall. If you want, you can flip over to chapter three. You can follow along. Kind of, I'm going to give you a brief because I don't have time to read it. But what happens is that Adam and Eve find themselves now happily married in paradise. God is their father walking around. And they come to this one rule. They're not supposed to eat of this tree in the center of the garden. And the serpent is there and it's Satan. And he tempts Eve. And Eve goes, okay, and eats. And Adam goes, okay, and eats. And both denying God, taking upon themselves what they think is right and wrong, denying God's rule of their life, and saying, we've got it figured out, God. You can take a break. And in that, everything starts to fall apart. First, sex has been totally messed up by the fall. Notice this in verse 7. After she, he ate, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You ever ask yourself when private parts became private parts? Probably not. The Bible did. The Bible literally said, when did private parts become private parts? Oh, the day 
and the second after Adam and Eve denied God's power over their life and took it upon themselves. They suddenly went, I'm naked. Let's get some leaves and and cover this mess. Suddenly, it's a mess because shame and nudity get connected. They're united suddenly. And I'll tell you what, it is embarrassing to be naked in front of people. You know how I know? Here, I'll tell you. Many years ago, living in an apartment, I was a youth pastor here, uh, came home, we were, I think we were going to have some friends over or something, I don't remember what, but I jumped in the shower real quick and popped out and left my clothes in, the, in my bedroom. Now, it was like a short jaunt down my hallway to get to my bedroom from my um, actual bathroom. So, you know, I'm coming out and my wife's the only one home and I'm like, this is no problem. Little did I know, as I opened the door, she opens the front door because somebody knocked on the door and in walks my close friend who is now much closer to me than I ever wanted. <laughs> And he's standing there and he's like, hey, and I'm like, ah, and I'm screaming bloody murder as I jump off into my, into my bedroom, slamming the door closed, getting dressed as fast as I can, going, ew, 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 ew. And he's going, ew, ew. You know, it's just, it's just embarrassing, okay? It's just embarrassing. It's just like your face is red. I don't even like telling the story, but it works. And then there's the other side. If you've ever been in this situation where you've been caught up in pornography and you're finally like, you turned it off and you walked away, you feel ashamed of yourself. Because shame is attached to nudity. Embarrassment is attached to nudity. It isn't, it's just, that's how it is. We cover up our private parts because honestly, we aren't comfortable being fully known anymore. See, we're not just covering up our physical private parts. You and I, Even if you're willing to be a nudist and go to Glen Eden, whatever, you'll still cover up the private parts of your soul. Because there are just places you're not willing to pull the fig leaf off. There are just places you don't want to be known. There are thoughts that you don't want to expose. There are actions you've done you don't want to share, not even with your spouse. Intimacy has suddenly become destroyed. Sex has been messed up by the fall because we've been separated from intimacy. And when that happens, the fall begins to mess things up. It messes first up our intimacy with God. And when that occurs, you see them, they go hide. They, first they sewed fig leaves together. Then it says they heard the Lord God coming in the garden, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now they're separated from God, who, who they would probably ran to and like, God, you're here, we love you. No, they're like, hmm. Think this one's big enough? I don't know. I think you can still see us. They run from God. Intimacy with God is broken. When that occurs, there's a problem because we're made in God's image. You're not original. You represent his reflection. And when you remove that which you represent, when we see that we're no longer in front of God, we lose our value. When God is infinitely valuable and we reflect him, you feel infinitely valuable because you are. But when he's removed and the intimacy's gone, we got to replace that value with something. And so we may do that with work, and maybe we do that with, with um, having children and our, our marriage life, or, or maybe that we're doing that with our money or our fame, but a lot of people do it with sex. They do it with the way that they look. Even, this is where prostitution comes in, and we sell ourselves for a valued money. I'm not talking about a value put on a person. 
I want to talk about why we shouldn't help these, inst- these industries out. It's because they're valuing humanity a far lower place. And we value ourselves even lower by the very act that is a covenant of life-giving, where I give my life to you and you give your life to mine, and now we're free to know each other in the most intimate manner. We turn that into just gimme, gimme. I'll take some, you take some, and it all becomes this flood of devaluation. In fact, what they're finding in hookup culture is more and more college students who engage in hookup culture are finding themselves feeling less and less valuable. What they thought was going to be fun is just causing them all kinds of pain. And the situation is just simply that our valuation is being destroyed. Not to mention our identity gets lost. If you're made in God's image, you are made to know yourself as you know God. But when God's removed, what gets put in the place is work or all these other things. And sex is now one of those things that says, I'll give you an identity. In fact, we have things called sexual identity. And we identify our entire lives by a piece, a small piece, actually, of our life. And it will swallow you whole as it forms addictions and other kinds of things. Because what's going on is as, as this intimacy is gone, it frees up sex to no longer be a covenant identifier, but a desire. We'll get to that in a second. And that's because marriage is hurt even further because our intimacy with each other is harmed. And even fact go on when God questions them, why are you hiding from me? He's like, well, and they, and they says, did you eat of the garden? Did you eat of that tree? And, and Adam goes, she did it, you know. Suddenly blame shifting everything off on his wife. And the marriage starts to crumble as God says, here's the curse. You're going to want to rule your husband. She's going to want to rule you. You're, he's going to want to rule you. And it's going to be this fight. There is a lack of intimacy and things are broken in the marriage. So sex is broken. Because if the marriage is broken and sex is a picture of that marriage, it's broken. You're going to start seeking sex for selfish gains, not to give to somebody you're frustrated with. Why would you want to give to somebody you're frustrated with? I want to get something. And guess what? The testosterone doesn't stop pumping. The estrogen doesn't stop kicking. All the chemical hormones are still going off. And yet here is this covenant relationship that's bound up. And so the desires are saying, I need this. I want this. And this relationship isn't healthy. And so one person says, I think we need to talk. And they say, I don't have time for talking. All right, well, let's have sex. I'm too tired. And weeks and months pile up on themselves until you finally have makeup sex because you fought something out. You know where makeup sex comes from? You finally felt intimate again. Because you pulled a piece of the fig tree off and and exposed your heart and something got healed and it brought some intimacy in. The reality is that as the marriage is hurt and intimacy is hurt and fighting hurts, sex becomes selfish and sex becomes less frequent. And you will see suddenly where you don't feel attracted to each other. You're not turned on. And so you'll invite some of these other things into your life, like pornography, to start driving an engine or doing something. And God says, that's not the intention. Sex is knowing each other. What's all this other stuff? It's called sexual immorality. It's called sensuality. Those are the two terms given. And so sex has been made selfish and destroyed by desire. So now sex runs rampant to attach to anything. Not just anybody, anything in this world. When the sexual desire is unleashed, it will attach to all kinds of stuff. And and you're like, where are you getting that? I get that from the Bible. I don't need culture to tell me that one. Check out Leviticus chapter 18. Flip a few pages over. Um, 
Leviticus is the law. This is one of those chapters that are not allowed in youth ministry or children's ministry. We just kind of conveniently go, and there was this stuff, and we move on. And so as adults, we're going to talk about it. Leviticus 18 is an interesting uh, book of references. This is not, as some people will argue, only for the Levitical priests. So we don't have to listen to it. That's a lie. Notice verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You're not going to do as they did in Egypt where you lived or as they do in the land of Canaan, which I'm bringing you to. You don't walk in their statues. don't follow their rules. You don't go, you, I'm the Lord. You follow my rules. So very clear, this is to the people of the covenant. Very clear, this is to the people. And then he goes on in verse 6 to begin. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. In other words, you don't gaze on, you don't voyeuristically gaze on your relatives' nudity and you don't have sex with them. And this is the whole point. Literally, when you read through here, it'll say, don't uncover their nakedness, don't uncover their nakedness. Again, Hebrews don't have a term for sex, especially when it's this kind of stuff. They're very euphemistic. They're like, just don't do that. That's shameful. Don't expose the shame. Don't do that shameful stuff. And suddenly what you have here is a reality that he's saying, incest is out. And now he's going to go into, you don't have sex with like your mom or your husband's wife or your aunt or, or you don't marry a woman and her daughter and you don't, just all kinds of stuff that was going on in the rest of the world and has been normal in all of history until the advent of Christianity. FYI. Nothing we see in America is new and revelatory. It's just old pagan practices that, we, that Christianity, when it spread, removed. And this is the chapters why. And so it goes on. After, and this is how many of them. There's just tons of them all the way down to verse 18. And it ends with, And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. So no marrying the, the wife and her sister. So that's just all this stuff. No way. Then it gets into another section here in verse 19 through 23. And these all have somewhat reference to some kind of a, a considered uncleanliness or some kind of aberrance to nature and spirituality. So this is this kind of clumped section of, of spiritual slash aber, uh, outside of the bounds of nature kind of stuff. And begins here. You shall not approach a woman, uncover her nakedness while she's on her menstrual uncleanness. That's a spiritual situation for the Hebrews. Blood was considered part of the life. You didn't do this. You don't approach in those situations. Yuck. All right. Verse 20. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Now, this has already been stated in the Ten Commandments, and so a lot of this has to do with sensuality or covetousness, the desire of the, un, of the unholy, as it's being put. And then out of the nowhere, it goes this, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I'm the Lord. Like, why is that in there? Because here's what the process of giving to Molech was. You'd give your firstborn, one of your children, and you would have these fiery hot hands of Molech, and you'd put your either slaughtered or living child on it in order to gain prowess sexually. Once your child was burned up and dead, you had sex with your spouse in hopes that it would give you lots of children or sex with many of your spouse, whatever it was. But this is the process of Molech. It was using it for spiritual power in the sexual realm. You think, what kind of a society is that that would sacrifice their children to have sex? Ours. Since the sexual revolution, and I'm not trying to harp on and hurt anybody who's had an abortion, that's been the primary reason why people have had abortions. 
And and that's your story. I'm not here to bring that hurt up. I really do think that that hurt is real and you should get counseling and help for that to work through it. And some of, and many of you have, and I praise God for that. But our culture is no different. We're doing similar things. It goes on and he says, you shall not lie with a male as a woman. It's an abomination. So homosexuality, you shall not lie with an animal so that you make yourself unclean with it. Bestiality, neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It's perversion. Guys, we can joke about sex and stuff like that, but once the sexual urge is released from the bounds of marriage, this is very clear. Sex becomes extremely plastic. It will go after anything and everything. Be it pictures of people, objects, animals, for power, for pleasure, in the wrong ways. Leviticus 18 reminds us that these are there. Now, God summed these up pretty simply. He said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the ultimate end of sexual evil. say, what? The Ten Commandments always lay out the ultimate ends. The worst thing you can do to a human being is to kill them. The worst thing you can do in associations with with people of authority is ignore your parents because they're your most intimate authority. Everything beneath that is, is, is is, is bad, but that's the horror. And they said, literally, adultery, the worst thing possible because you're destroying the very thing that sex is. Destroying the very covenant that it says it's a part of. Every other form of sex is beneath that. All this other stuff you read in Leviticus 18 is because the covenant isn't upheld. And this is the ultimate evil. Now, the others of it, it all fits in sensuality. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You don't want to do the bad. You don't want what's not yours. And so these two terms, sexual immorality which is what Leviticus 18 lays out, and sensuality, which is the running after your passions without, with just wanton abuse, are both terms that Jesus said was wrong, every apostle says is wrong, every prophet points at is wrong. There is not a section of scripture that does not argue that these things are sin and wrong, regardless of what people want to tell you. When Jesus uses the word sexual immorality and sensuality, he is referencing this concept of Leviticus. It's because sex is selfish in these contexts. Say, I'm not being selfish sleeping with my girlfriend. I love her. I give to her. Then why not marry her? Why not, if you're willing to do all the acts that says you're giving your life to her, give your life to her. Give your life to him. It's not a fear of commitment. It's selfishness. Because one day you'll be able to just move on and you got what you wanted. And guys, that's what the Bible is saying. When this is broken loose, sexual immorality, which is not sex, runs rampant to all kinds of things. So where does that leave us as the church? Well, first, it means we shouldn't be shocked at human inventiveness when it comes to sex. Guys, nothing's new under the sun. Read your Bible all the way through. And nothing America produces in sex, and nothing the pornography industry produces in sex, none of this stuff should shock you. You should be prepared because you see the human beings are all do all kinds of crazy stuff. All right? And human inventiveness is not what we're after. We don't want to be shocked, but we want to be pure. The opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's holiness. The opposite 
of rampant sexual use of things in this world is not just, you know, well, I'm going to control myself. It's holiness. What is holiness? It's intimacy with God. It is knowing God. You want a better marriage? Have an intimacy with God. You want to be a better single? Have intimacy with God. Know God. Let that be the basis of your intimacy and it begins to change everything else because when my wife wants to know God and I want to know God and we both want to know God, we're actually growing closer together than further apart. And our intimacy is getting deeper, not not further. And the beauty is that suddenly we're not after the desire, what can I get out of the sexual stuff, whether it be how people look at me or what I get from my husband or I get from my wife. It's about what can I give. And we are pure. Paul puts it this way. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, notice that covers all the things we've talked about, must not even be named among you as talking to the church as is proper among saints. There's no wiggle room here, guys. This is what God says sex is. The rest is not. How close can I go? Another way of translating this in the NIV is not even a hint is to be named. That's a high standard. You say, well, how in the world do you do that? Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week and the fact that honestly, we can't. We need to trust in Jesus Christ as our salvation and our forgiveness. But we will cover the the methods of growth and and how we develop in holiness over the next few weeks. And you say, why would I want to do this? This sounds horrible. Actually, it's extremely powerful. We trust God because he knows what's best. He knows. He invented it. He knows exactly what's happening. He's given us these laws to protect us from dangers that are very clear and provide for us a great life. Now, here's what the thing is. We are a a sex-crazed culture. And so over the last few decades, well, you know what we've done? We've done a lot of sex surveys. Who has the best sex? Who is the, who's the happiest in sex? All this stuff about sex. I hear about them all the time because Michael Medved loves to talk about them and he brings them up. Invariably, every single time, you know who's number one on top? Single people, right? Nope, 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 nope. It's married people. Evangelicals. You guys. Because those who follow the word of God find they're more satisfied, find they're giving, find it's not selfish, find that it's healthy. And married people and single people, it's because we want to know God. And from that, we want to live out the gospel of knowing each other. And from that, we want to give and share and love with each other. And this is the beauty of what it is. I hope that you would take these truths that we're learning and as we apply them over the next three weeks to single life to married life, then we would be able to go, you know what? Mm, God is awesome. Amen? He has given us such good to live with. So I want to pray over all of us because there's a lot of questions and thoughts and frustrations and everything else. So I want to ask God to help us as we continue to work through this. And so, Father, we do. We come before you. We ask as your children that you'd continue to lead us on, challenge us, inspire us, and teach us your word. We want to be a people who obey it, not because we just get something great from it, but because we want to love you and know you. Would you please teach us? Would you please help us with our frustrations and give us the things that we need as we work through this subject so we can glorify you? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.